0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word.
1: Today's reading is from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning, family of God. In the first one and a half verses of this text of scripture, Luke drops seven names. And most of us are probably not familiar with most of these names and most of the places that are mentioned. And so when we're reading our Bible and get to Luke chapter three, most of you probably do what I'm prone to do, which is to skim over those first one and a half verses fast so you can get to the juicy stuff when John the Baptist shows up on the scene. But the reason Luke drops those seven names is to alert us to the fact that John comes as a prophet proclaiming a message of repentance and hope during some very dark times. Each of these names is a reminder of a dark and painful situation that God's people are in. Tiberius Caesar is the Roman emperor. To mention him is to remind us that the Jews, the people of God, who are waiting for his deliverance, are trying to survive under the boot of oppression. Three of these individuals are called tetrarchs which reminds us that the region of Judea, which was the cultural and spiritual center for God's people, had been divided into these different territories, each of which was ruled by rival political leaders. And now the ordinary Jews who are trying to walk with God are being subject to that regional division and those regional factions, because Rome is very good at keeping people subjected to its power and one of its Uh, tactics is to divide and conquer. This is particularly troubling because the prophets had foretold that when the salvation of God comes, the Jews, that is the descendants descendants of the tribe of Judah, are going to be reunited with the other tribes of Israel. But not only is that not happening, but the Jews are being divided from one another. Not only that, Luke makes it clear that the most powerful local political figure is Pontius Pilate. That's a name that probably is familiar to us because we know This man is not only not a Jew, he's not only a Gentile, but he's a man who loves his power and who's willing to keep his power, even if it means denying the truth and executing an innocent person, as he will do to Jesus Christ at the end of this story. And finally, we might begin to hope that among the religious leadership of God's own people, there would be some who would provide some moral and spiritual stability. But Luke mentions Caiaphas, the high priest, and Annas, his father-in-law, who used to be the high priest, and still exerts a significant influence. And those are names that may resonate with us as well, because Caiaphas is the religious leader who is spiritually blind, whom we're going to run into again at the end of this gospel, because not only does he not partner with God in the new thing that God is doing, but he actively opposes Jesus Christ. And these blind spiritual guides are going to whip up the crowd into a frenzy to call for the death of the God who has come to save them. These are dark times. It was in the midst of these very dark times. That the prophet John came saying, get ready, because God is about to do a new thing. And I, I want some of us in this room to hear this in a very personal way this morning because some of you in here are going through some very dark times. I know there's some people in this room or some people watching the live stream online right now who woke up this morning feeling like you were in the valley of the shadow of death, feeling like you were in a dark place. And just to get to worship today, to get to this space or to even tune into the live stream took some significant effort for you and you're. Searching is their hope for me in the midst of our darkness. And and John the Baptist is here as a witness to say to us today, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. In the midst of our darkness, God has a way of showing up to do a new thing. And if you want to hear about the new thing God is doing, just drop your eyes with me down to verse 6. We'll say more about this in a moment. These are Words from Isaiah. Luke is quoting Isaiah 40. The verse 6 says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Friends, if you look at the face of Jesus of Nazareth, you see the salvation of God. Jesus has come to shine light into the darkness. Jesus has come to forgive sinners. Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God and to proclaim that every earthly power is subject to the higher authority of God's kingdom, which means every form of oppression has an expiration date. Jesus has come to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. Jesus has come to be the good shepherd who shepherds the sheep who are wandering for lack of spiritual guidance. Jesus has come to die on the cross for our sins and to rise again. And he will return in glory to make everything new. So when verse six says all flesh shall see the salvation of God, it's saying by the time Jesus is done, there is no corner of this dark world that will not have been touched and healed and redeemed by his grace. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not and cannot overcome it. So, friend, whatever you're going through this morning. There's hope. There's hope in Jesus. But we need to say, John is not the light. Everybody say, Jesus is the light. John is not the light. John is a witness who has come to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get a nice summary of the ministry and message of John in the second half of verse 2 and in verse 3. So let's take a second to... Really chew on and digest those verses. Take it slowly. Look at the second half of verse 2. It says, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's a short little phrase, but it's actually packed full of meaning. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. First, think about that little phrase, the word of God came. We don't talk like that, do we? Isaiah, I mean, Isaac called me yesterday but I wouldn't say the word of Isaiah, I wouldn't say the word of Isaac or the word of Isaiah came to me. Right? We don't talk like that. My wife talked to me this morning, but I wouldn't say I woke up and the word of Candace came to me. That's a weird way of talking. But the Old Testament speaks this way about God's word. It personifies the word of God because God's word is his active agent creatively and redeemingly at work within the world. God sends forth his word to make things new. And when the scriptures say the word of the Lord came, that's a signal for us that God is about to show up and do a new thing. If you want to read about this, you could go to Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. And it says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is saying when I speak, I'm sending out my word with a purpose and it always does what I send it to do. God created the universe by the word of his power. God formed the world by the word of his power. God can Bring down evil powers and raise up the downtrodden by the word of his power. And in this text, God is saying, I'm sending my word as if to a barren wasteland, but I'm going to make it spring up with life. Anybody ever experienced that in your own life? If you've been feeling down and discouraged and dead and God has spoken to you with power in a way that brought new life to you, say amen. I know that I have been there and In the Old Testament, when we read about the word of God coming to somebody, it's identifying this individual as a prophet. That's what's being done right here. John is a prophet like Elijah, like Moses, like Samuel, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, who comes bringing the word of the Lord. The text goes on to say the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. Now, when we read that, Luke wants us to pause and remember the story of John's daddy, Zachariah. If you have been with us for the last few weeks, you know that John is a miracle baby. His father, Zachariah, and his mother, Elizabeth, were very old. They had been infertile for decades, praying for a baby. And then God sent a miraculous messenger, an angel, to tell Zachariah that they would conceive in their old age and bear a son. And when, when John was finally born... Zachariah prophesied to his son about the destiny that God had prepared for this son. I want to invite you to turn a couple pages to the left if you got your Bible. Look with me at the last four verses of Luke chapter one. Luke wants us to pause and remember real quick. Luke chapter one, beginning of verse seventy six. This is what Zechariah had said about his son and you, child talking to baby John and you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John has come before the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, to prepare the way so people will be ready to receive Jesus. And this is what it's going to look like to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Now John's time has come. His prophetic ministry is beginning, which means soon after this, Jesus is going to come and begin his ministry. But notice it says the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, this word wilderness is an important word in our Bibles. You might want to circle that word or underline that word. And if you've never done so, I would encourage you to do a little word study. Type into the, your favorite Bible app the word wilderness or desert and just go read all the places it shows up because this is a very important setting in Scripture. The wilderness is a place of loneliness and isolation. The wilderness is generally a place of hunger and thirst and thirst. The other Gospels tell us John ate locusts out in the wilderness, which generally people don't do unless they're pretty hungry. Some cultures might like it. The wilderness is a place of separation from the comforts of human society. It's a place of discomfort. It's associated with pain and struggle. And if you go read all those Bible passages that talk about the wilderness, you'll find a couple of things. First of all, you'll find the devil is at work in the wilderness. Satan shows up to tempt people when they are vulnerable. But you will also find that God is at work in the wilderness. And God is stronger than the devil. And that in the wilderness, God is often doing a special thing to prepare his people for a new thing that he's about to do. The wilderness is a place of preparation. It's a place of refining. John is in the wilderness and God is drawing people out to the wilderness to hear the word of the Lord, to be prepared for the new thing he's got to do. Sometimes we have to get shaken out of our comfort zone, shaken out of our element in order to hear God's word in a fresh way. And again, I want to say some of you in this room need to hear this in a very personal way today, because some of you are in one of these seasons that we call wilderness seasons. Seasons of dryness, perhaps of loneliness, Feelings of isolation. You may feel very distant from God. Part of, one of the things you learn as you study what the Bible says about this is that you are not distant from God ever. But you might feel very distant from God in the wilderness. And if you're in the wilderness, a couple things you need to keep in mind. First of all, you need to be on alert because the devil is at work. He's going to try and tempt you. He probably already is. But then you need to be encouraged because God is at work and God is stronger than the devil. And in the wilderness, if you learn to listen to the word of God, that's that's the work of the wilderness. The work of the wilderness is to learn to hear the word of God. And if you'll learn that in the wilderness, hearing the word of the Lord, hanging on his every word, being like Jesus, who says in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you will do that work and learn to wait for the Lord, God will prepare you in the wilderness for something good he's about to do. Because he's not going to lead you in the wilderness forever. Isn't that good news? He's going to lead you out of the wilderness. And you need to be ready for what comes next. Continuing into verse 3. We get a little summary description of what John is preaching in the wilderness. It says he went into all the region around the Jordan. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's another one of those phrases we need to chew on for a moment. The forgiveness of sins. Those are like four of my favorite words. The forgiveness of sins. Isn't it awesome to know that your sins can be forgiven? Church family, I have sinned a lot. And I wish I could stand here and tell you my testimony was, I sinned a lot, and then I heard about Jesus, then I got saved, and then I didn't sin anymore. But I've continued to battle with sin and to battle with temptation. And to get frustrated with myself throughout my Christian journey. Does somebody else want to be honest and say, me too? And the, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I recognize how devastatingly ugly and destructive sin is. And yet, it's at work inside of me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, i got to battle it every day. One of the things I get most excited about if, in heaven is not having to fight sin anymore. I look forward to that. But in the meantime, every day I'm trying to walk in obedience And God's helping me grow, but sin is always right around the corner, ready to devour. I've sinned a lot, and I've come to understand the closer I've got to Jesus, the more I've come to know his holiness, that sin is very destructive. And what what Desmond Tutu said about the world is true about me. There is no future without forgiveness. I would have no hope if there was not forgiveness. But Jesus is about to come from heaven. You see, he has already come from heaven. When John says this, he has just come from heaven and Jesus has come as the God man with authority to forgive sins. Understand, John the Baptist does not have power to forgive your sins. Only Jesus does. And John is getting us ready for Jesus. The message of the gospel is this. You don't have to pretend that your good outweighs your bad. So you're going to be okay and God loves you. You can just be honest. I'm not just a victim of the world's evil. I'm a participant. And then you can look to Jesus Christ. And if you look to him in desperate faith and say, I need Jesus, then the gospel says your sins are forgiven. And that's what John came to proclaim. But this message about the forgiveness of sin here is connected with this phrase baptism of repentance. Baptism of repentance. Now, this word repentance is an important word. And if we had to pick one word that was most associated with John the Baptist, it might be this word. Everybody say repentance. The word repentance refers to a change in the orientation of our hearts. It's a deep change of soul, a change of mind. My heart was facing that way. And now... It's facing this way. That's repentance. It's about my soul was running after evil. And now it's turning to trust in the Lord. This is a deep internal work. But it's an internal work that over time becomes visible externally. Because if I've had a deep change in my heart. Now I'm going to speak different kinds of words. And I'm going to do different kinds of actions. Which is why John says bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And if you th- Really understand what repentance is, a deep reorientation of your soul. It becomes clear that this work of repentance is something actually that I cannot do in my own strength. Nor can you. Our little puny free will is not strong enough to change the basic orientation of our nature. I cannot turn my heart from sin to God in my own strength. I need God's grace to do that. But. The beautiful thing that scripture teaches is that when God calls us to repent, he also sends the power of the Holy Spirit active with that word to give us the grace to do the thing he's calling us to do. I love a verse in Hosea chapter 12. Hosea has been calling the people of Israel to repentance and they're getting discouraged and demoralized because it's like, hey, for generations we keep sinning and God keeps telling us to repent and we seem to not do it. You ever felt that way? Like you read your Bible and it said, repent. He's like, I keep trying. But the last 10 times I tried, nothing happened. And you start to feel powerless and the people are feeling discouraged and demoralized. They're beginning to spare. And Hosea chapter 12, verse six says, so you, by the help of your God return. He's saying God will help you repent, which means if you're here today and, you know, my heart is pointed in the wrong direction. It's not pointed towards faith in Jesus Christ as my first love and the only savior and the only one I'm looking to for satisfaction. Then you're in company with all the rest of us, all of us. Need God's grace to help us keep turning ourselves back to Jesus Christ. And what you need to do in your pew right now is just pray to God. God, turn my heart back to you. God, turn my heart back to you. So you see, the Christian life begins with repentance. To become a Christian means to say, my life was dominated by sin and now I'm turning to Jesus to trust in him. That's the beginning of the Christian life. But repentance is also an every day, every hour aspect of discipleship. My life is now focused on Jesus and I'm like pointed towards him. But then stuff happens and I start going like this. You do it too? Jared admits it. Anybody else get a little distracted sometimes? That's why Jesus teaches us to pray. He teaches his disciples to pray when we pray, forgive us our trespasses. We're pointed towards Jesus, but we get a little off and repentance is the work of saying, God, help me. I want to turn back to you. I want to trust in you. Baptism of repentance is what John is doing. John's baptism is a forerunner that anticipates the baptism we're about to celebrate right there in a few minutes. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is identification with Jesus and his death and resurrection. But it's a powerful symbol because when people are going to John out in the Jordan River, They're coming, confessing their sins, and they're going down into the water, dirty sinners, and they're going down in the water, which is kind of scary, like dying, and then they come out alive and cleansed and fresh by God's grace. And that's what repentance is like. So John is talking to us about repentance, and he's talking to us about repentance because he wants us to experience God's salvation, which brings us back to verses 4 through 6. Luke quotes, Isaiah chapter 40. And if you go study Isaiah chapter 40, you will learn this is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. And it's all about God's comfort. The chapter begins with these words, comfort, comfort, my people, Israel. And it's all about God's grace and forgiveness after his discipline. And he's quoting that passage now and a part of the passage that foretold the coming of John and saying, John is the prophet who's come to get us ready to experience The dawn of God's light, because Jesus, the Savior, is coming and all flesh shall see God's salvation. So this is about comfort. It's about grace. It's about forgiveness of sins. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then when we get down to verse seven, we see that John gets us ready to experience God's comfort and forgiveness of grace by saying mean things that hurt our feelings. He speaks some hard words. I mean, just look at look at his opening line. You brood of vipers. That means you're children of snakes. And for his Jewish audience. When they hear that, they're thinking of Genesis three. He's saying you children of the devil. It's like nobody told John about the power of positive thinking. I don't think y'all would like me if I stood up here and the first thing I says, you children of Satan. Y'all wouldn't feel encouraged by that, would you? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Church, this is sober stuff. He's talking to us about sin and judgment and wrath. Look how how he ends his little section right here, verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We don't like to talk that way today in the 21st century in America, do we? We're a little a little emotionally fragile. And we we want people to tell us, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're good. And when people tell us we're good, we feel good. But then sometimes we don't, because sometimes we lay in bed at night and think, actually, I'm kind of selfish. And actually, I, I was too harsh with my kids today, or actually, I was dishonest that one time at work. And our consciences start talking to us. And the thing about trying to feel better by saying you're good, you're good, you're good, is that then when you're honest with yourself and you start to see your own sin, you don't have a savior left if your salvation depends on your own goodness. But John is here reminding us that we have to face the reality of our sin before we're going to know how sweet God's forgiveness is. We've got to face the reality of our brokenness. Before we can know how good it is that Jesus came to heal us. John comes as the last great prophet of the old covenant. That's going to be said explicitly later in Luke's gospel. And as such, John comes with all the fire of Moses and all the fire of Elijah and all the fire of Jeremiah. He comes holding up the law to us and saying, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John comes making war on our self-righteousness. That would be another way to put it. I'm going to lead the way in confession. Sometimes I can be pretty self-righteous. And sometimes you can be pretty self-righteous. If you're feeling offended by me saying that, that's because you're kind of self-righteous, right? That's how that works. I was working on this sermon this week. And then I got into a loving conversation with Candace and started getting a little self-righteous. And then the Holy Spirit started talking to me about my sermon. And I was kind of like, wanted to say, back off, John. I'm trying to talk to my wife. But here, God, God was bringing up this text. Showing me, hey, there's some stuff in me that tends to minimize my own sin and maximize other people's sin. Can anybody else relate to that? John is here to make war on our self-righteousness. And what he's saying to us is the same thing that, for example, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when he's talking to those Christians in Ephesus about their new identity in Christ, he says, before Jesus, you were by nature children of wrath. It's saying we were born desperate sinners, unable to save ourselves. That's what he's saying. Now, don't get it twisted, friends. God loves you. Everybody take a deep breath. Say, God loves me. And you're created in the image of God, which means by nature and in essence, you're made to reflect his goodness. But also the Bible doesn't let us be naive or foolishly optimistic about our own nature. There's something bent inside of us so that when we hear go this way, we tend to go that way and People like Moses and people like Elijah and people like John the Baptist have been sent by God to us to help us hear the world, uh, hear this word. You tend to feel like you're a victim of the world's evil, but you are a participant. And if you want to experience the fullness of God's salvation, you need something deeper than deliverance from your political enemies. What you need is deliverance from sin, Satan and death. What you need is deliverance from your own rebellion against God. And John is coming, helping us, holding up a mirror to us to see our own desperate need so that we don't have to say, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. God will accept me. We could say I'm more broken than I know. But God loves me more than I've dared to imagine. I'm more broken than I know, but Jesus Christ is God himself who has come to go to the cross to bear all of my guilt and all of my sin and all of my shame. He came to bear all of the evil I've done and all of its consequences because he loves me so much. And he rose from the grave so I can be delivered from the penalty of sin and could be reconciled with God so that I can have a new identity. I'm no longer a child of wrath. I'm an adopted child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Like we sung a second ago, I am a child of God. But we got to hear about our sin sometimes before we're ready. Here's some diagnostic questions about self-righteousness. Are you prone to criticizing other people? I just want to encourage you to think about these questions that John is hitting us with. Are you prone to criticizing other people? Are you filled with. Righteous indignation towards others on a regular basis. Do you go through life mad at the world for its sins? Do you sometimes struggle to worship and hear God's word because you're so mad at the rest of the church for its sins? Are you mad at your family for all of their sins, all their failures and weaknesses? We tend to take around with us an invisible measuring stick and hold it up to other people and other people keep falling short. And Jesus says to us, with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Listen, when I'm self-righteous and critical and arrogant towards others, I'm using a standard that I don't want to be judged by. And God's standard is much higher than mine. I mean, I may have something I'm going to use to criticize somebody else, but God's holy law is perfect. I fall way short of it. Each one of us has chosen to love ourselves more than other people's. We've all harmed people with harsh words. We've all killed people in our minds. We've all lusted after other people in our hearts. There's no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And John is saying, hear that word, hear that word, hear that word so that you can hear this other word, which is that there is a savior coming. There is a savior coming. And you need to understand your need so that you can understand what he has come to do for you. As a matter of fact, right in the middle of these hard words of John is a word that we might miss. But to me, it's a sweet word. It's like an oasis in the desert. Look at the second half of verse eight. John says, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Now, some of us don't know the promises of God well enough to know that a child of Abraham means a child of God. Abraham is the child of promise to be a child of Abraham is to be saved. It means to know that you're going to inherit God's new creation. And he's rebuking people saying you trust in your family and you trust in your religious pedigree and you think you're so righteous, but you're sinners who need to repent. But right in the middle of all that, he says, God can raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Now, that's not just a hypothetical statement about God's power. That's my personal testimony. And that's the testimony of every redeemed Christian, because to be a Christian is not to say I was doing bad and then I turned to choose good and now I'm okay. to be a Christian is to be a person who was dead with a stony heart. And then God showed you Jesus Christ. He showed you his love in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus. And then he awakens our stony hearts to trust in Christ. And then God says, you're forgiven and you are a child of God. That's what it means to be saved. It's pure grace. It's pure grace. After. Assaulting our flimsy attempts at self-esteem by exposing our sinfulness. The Bible comes with a much more durable way to tell us that actually you do matter. You do matter, but it's because you're created and saved and loved by God. You're a child of God. Now, here's the amazing thing. When you look to Jesus, when you when we repent of our self-righteousness and we say, I am in desperate need of a savior and I cannot save myself, I need Jesus to save me. And then the word of God comes back to us and says, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're reconciled. Then the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts where we start liking God. We start loving God. There's a work of gratitude that awakens in us Such that we start wanting to live a lifestyle of repentance. And now the rest of this little section of scripture is just John responding to people's questions. Describing what does a lifestyle of repentance look like. And it's so beautiful because it's simple. It's simple. I mean look with me at verses 10 and 11. When we receive the gospel of grace and we think, I deserve judgment, but God loves me, and I'm forgiven through Jesus. Now I'm free. How do we start to live? John says, if you got two coats and somebody's cold, give them one of your coats. If you see somebody's hungry, share some of your food with them. <laughs> I love it. Here, here's the message here, guys. Repentance is not complicated. It's simple, but it's deep. Repentance is not about mastering a a new set of ideas. It's about receiving a new heart by grace because the law has done its work to show us how desperately in need of help we are. And then the gospel has done its work to say, and God loves you and God loves you and you're forgiven and the Holy Spirit's here to help you. It's simple. And then something amazing happens among all these spiritual seekers coming to John we keep finding that the self-righteous religious people are the last ones to get his message. And the great big sinners are the first ones. And this is going to be something that Luke is going to remind us of over and over throughout his gospel. I mean, whoever's despised in society is who's going to come to Jesus first. And Jesus is going to say the kingdom of God is often so close to those people who already know that they're desperate sinners. So it's people like Zacchaeus. It's people like Mary Magdalene who come to Jesus and show us what repentance looks like. And experience God's forgiveness. But now here in this story, it says tax collectors and Roman soldiers came to him. Now, here's the thing. Those are two categories of people who work for Rome. And many of John's hearers really felt like what we need is for God to rescue us from the evil out there, which we are victims of. And John's trying to tell them, you really need God to rescue you from the evil in here, in your heart. But in their minds, the evil out there was rec, uh, represented especially by the Roman Empire. Tax collectors and are people that sold out their own people to work for Rome. And Roman soldiers are the enforcers. And I want you to go meditate on verses 12 through 14 this week. But if I can just paraphrase simply, basically what he says to them, everybody's expecting John to say, quit your job. Step one of repentance. Stop being a Roman soldier. Step one of repentance. Stop being a tax collector. And he doesn't say that. What he says is. Okay, you're wanting to come to God. And you want to know what does it look like to live a life of faith and repentance. He says, just go back to your everyday life. And do your best to live it with integrity and contentment and compassion. Just go back to your everyday life. And do your best to live with integrity and contentment and compassion. See, the lifestyle of repentance that God is calling us to sometimes involves moving across the world. We just pray for some people moving temporarily across the world to join some others who have longer term moved across the world for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes it might mean quitting our job and moving into a new neighborhood or doing something radical. But very often what it means is just go back to your regular life and trust God and love people. Your daily work, your daily life, loading boxes on a truck, teaching kids, preparing meals and then cleaning up meals and changing diapers, whatever it is you do day by day, John is saying can become like a sanctuary for a holy lifestyle of worship. If you just learn to live with God in that place. Now, friends, I'm done. I'm done this morning expounding this text for you. But I want to finish right now by inviting you to invite the Holy Spirit to do what I cannot do. Which is just inviting you, uh, inviting the Holy Spirit of God to say, Lord, show me in my heart where you're calling me to repentance. Where are you calling me to realignment? Where are you calling me to turn away from some sin To realign myself with Jesus. And and as I ask you to say that prayer, I really want you to hear. the, The real heart of the passage is not get your life together so that you can be right with God. The real heart of the passage is this. God loves broken people. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. To call you to repentance is God saying, I have come to you who cannot save yourself with grace to save you. And I want to call you into wholeness and I want to call you into freedom. So the call to repentance is really just a call to say, God, show me how to open my heart and my life to all the fullness of joy you want to give me in Jesus. And I want to invite you right now just to bow your head where you are. I'm going to be quiet for a few moments so you can pray. Holy Spirit, show me what's the next step of discipleship. For some of you, today can be the first day. For some of you right now, you may be recognizing I've been living my whole life under the illusion that I'm the boss and I need to just confess my sins and believe in Jesus for the first time. If that's you, do it and God will forgive your sins. Cry out to him in your heart. And then the Bible says the next step is to confess publicly. So to a friend, to a loved one, to somebody that brought you to church, to a pastor, come talk to us about your decision that I want to follow Jesus now. And we could talk about what the next step will be. But for many of us Christians, we've been walking with him for a long time. But discipleship is a day-to-day call to say, God, reorient my heart. So right where you are, would you just pray? Holy Spirit, show me what's the next step of repentance you're calling me to. I want to invite you to stand now as the band's about to come up here to lead us in one more song of worship. We're going to celebrate a baptism, but I want to say a prayer over you before we move into this last song. Our Father in heaven. I just want to confess that there's something inside of me that self-righteously rebels against the convicting words of the law. So we just ask, would you forgive us? As a people, we say, forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us for thinking we can save ourselves. Forgive us for being critical of others. Lord, we need you. And we thank you for the promise of the gospel. That everyone who comes to you in humble faith saying, I'm a sinner, I need grace, receives grace. We thank you that in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness of sins. That in Jesus Christ there is wholeness. And I want to pray even now as we sing that your Holy Spirit would continue the work that you've begun as we meditate on your word. Would you make us people who walk in the freedom of our identity in Christ. In Jesus we are not children of the devil. In Jesus we are children of God. And let that identity, that word of identity that you speak over us, set our hearts free that we're going to want to go back to our daily lives this week. Out of gratitude, living lives of integrity, lives of compassion and generosity for your glory and not for our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.